It's great to see you this morning. I know it's Christmas time because my Bible's full of Christmas cards that people have handed me. Uh, you know, shorten the uh, U.S. Postal Service out of that stamp cost, right? But I can't wait to get home and open those and see who they're from and, and what all that's about. Last Sunday was a great day. We had our choir and orchestra up here and, and did our, uh, their musical performance, and I, that was fantastic. Um, I enjoyed that so much. Every year, this is my, that was my third one, and every year has been better than the previous year, so uh, I hope that continues. If you didn't get a chance to see it, or if you saw it and you'd like to see it again, James has uploaded that to our YouTube page, our YouTube channel. All you have to do is go on YouTube and type in First Baptist Conroe and you'll find it. Um, so you can watch the whole thing. You can, if you had an individual, if you had a particular song that was your favorite, you can you can find that and play it. I've already rewatched a couple of them, and I, I wanted to tell you also. I hate to bring this up, but we're only two weeks away from a new year. Yeah, I know it's all it's already upon us. Here at First Baptist, we've got great plans for 2019. We are challenging ourselves as individual Christians, as a corporate body of Christ to chase after God like we never have before, to invest in our relationship with God like we never have before. And that that means four specific challenges, and we're calling it all in. To read through the Bible this year, to to, uh, pray for the lost, to engage in missions, and to commit to generosity. And when you walk out the door after the service is over, there's a table to your right that has all in on it. And there are several sheets of paper there you can grab that that talk about the different challenges, why they are. There's a new one there this week, in fact, about praying for lost people and the method that we recommend. So take a look at that before you head out. You want to be ready so that on January 1st you can get started uh, with those all-in challenges. Now, if you would, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We're continuing in our series on this very, very well-known passage of Scripture. Today we're in verse 6 of Isaiah 9. When I was in college, I had a roommate named Mike um, who was a big, big fan of rock music. Now, we all listened to that kind of music in that, in that era of our lives, but he, he was the kind of guy who had hundreds of of vinyl albums of rock music, and he thought that was the only real way to listen to music. He was a hipster 20 years before there were hipsters, in that respect at least. He not only listened to it, he knew stuff about it. He was the kind of guy who, if you heard a song on the radio and you said, hey Mike, who's that by? He would know, and he'd know what bands those band members were in before. He could tell you all the trivia about it. Now, I can remember my freshman year, Mike heard a new song that he really enjoyed. It was by a band I'd never heard of. It was kind of a melancholy song about the girl that got away. And he played it for a while, for about a month there. He just played it obsessively. He bought the album. He queued it up anytime someone new came to the dorm room who hadn't heard it yet. Hey, you've got to hear this song. And I remember him saying, I feel like a born-again Christian. I want everybody to know about this. And I thought, what a weird thing to say. I was the only person out of four guys in that dorm room, I was the only one who would have described myself at the time as a born-again Christian. Mike later became a follower of Jesus, but he wasn't at the time. And so I thought, are you just picking on me? But no, actually, he was being very correct. Mike, you see, had grown up in a home with an irreligious dad who had come to know Christ when Mike was a young man, a teenager, and he was, at that point, a pastor. He became a pastor after that and and was pastoring churches. And so Mike knew what it meant when someone was born again. He knew that if Jesus really comes into someone's life, he changes them, and they're going to want people to know about him. 
And that's what we're doing in this series on Isaiah 9. Isaiah is writing 700 years before the birth of Jesus to tell everyone who will read, everyone who will hear, here's what the Messiah is going to be. Here's what he's going to do for you. Get ready for him. He's going to change you. Now, here we are 2,000 years after Jesus. We're experiencing the fulfillment of those promises. And so our job is to tell others, here's what Jesus has come to do for you. Here's how he can change your life for the better forever. So the rest of the story is, years later when Carrie and I were expecting our firstborn child, my wife is an old-fashioned kind of girl, and so she didn't want to know the gender of the baby ahead of time. Drove me nuts. I was dying to know, but she's like, no, 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 let's just wait until that day. So we had to come up with a name for a boy and a name for a girl just in case. Now, the boy's name, we had that figured out pretty early on. I, I was a big, uh, one of my big heroes from history was a guy named William Carey. He was an English clergyman who uh, went to India to share the gospel. He was actually the first Protestant missionary, really started the missionary movement in the 1700s, 1800s. And William is a name from my family. My mother's maiden name is Williams. My brother's name is William. Um, and Carrie is the name of a girl I'm kind of sweet on. So we just, William Carrie Berger just seemed the natural name for a boy. On the other hand, the girl's name was a little harder for us. We didn't agree for a long time. We had our little baby name books and we went through and made top 10 lists and she really didn't like some of my names, and I really didn't like some of hers, and we went back and forth on that. And finally I said, I thought back to that song my friend Mike had liked about the girl that got away, and in the song, the girl's name is Kaylee, and it's spelled K-A-Y-L-E-I-G-H. And I said, well, how about that? That's kind of pretty. And Carrie liked it because Kay and Lee are both names that are popular in her family, and so we had our new two names. And then, you know, God gives us one of each along the way, and so we got to use both of those names. Now, if you have kids of your own, you probably have a similar story you could tell about how you came up with a name for your child. If you don't have kids, whether you have kids or not, you probably know the story of where your name comes from. Maybe you were named after a grandparent or, a, or an uncle. Maybe you were named after uh, someone who was famous at the time you were born or a, or a person from history. Maybe your parents just like the, the sound of your name. It's interesting how certain names become popular during certain periods of time and then later on, you don't see them as often. And let's face it, let's be honest, some names it seems just come because somebody lost a hand of Scrabble. They just threw the letters together and okay, let's just... Let's just call him whatever. So um, we, na- we have our own ways of naming children, but in biblical times, names were very meaningful. Names weren't just chosen for the sound of them or because they reminded you of a particular person. The names people used in the ancient world, at least in Israel, had a meaning that reflected the parents' wishes for their child or for the nation of Israel. For instance, Elijah. One of my heroes from the Old Testament. The name Elijah in Hebrews means Yahweh is God. You think about when Elijah was born. It was during a time in Israel when the nation had turned away from God and most of the people were worshiping false gods. And so Elijah's parents very boldly said, we're naming our child Yahweh is God because we want to make this declaration. Elijah grows up to fulfill that destiny. He's a very bold prophet for Yahweh. You know, Nathan led us in a song just a moment ago. What a wonderful name, the name of Jesus. And you may, not, you may think that's a weird thing to sing. You know, what's so great about Jesus' name? Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. It means God saves. It's actually the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. 
And Jesus fulfilled that destiny. Now, in the Old Testament, we see several instances where someone took on a different name. You know, you you could have one name at birth, but then later on you would adopt a different name or maybe people would give you a name because of your character. There's a person in 1 Samuel named Nabal. The name Nabal in Hebrew means fool. I'm willing to bet Nabal's parents did not name him Nabal. He took on that name later. And folks, if you've read the story in 1 Samuel, he earned that name, okay? There's also a story of a lady in uh, the book of Joshua named Rahab. Some of you know this story, a little more familiar. Um, she's a, she was a prostitute in the city of Jericho who sheltered two of the Israelite men and rescued their lives and became a part of the Israelite community. And, you know, because she's rather a famous character, you've probably heard the story. Maybe you've pictured her in your mind. Maybe, maybe in your mind she looks sort of like Julia Roberts, Right. Well, actually, in Hebrew, the name Rahab means large. So she was Big Mama, really. That was, that was the name she was given over time. Um, another instance is Naomi. Naomi is the mother-in-law of Ruth. Naomi actually took a new name for herself because she, her husband and her sons died in quick succession. And she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. I want to be called Mara because that means bitter. And I, my heart is bitter right now because of all my losses. So considering all of that, and I could give many more examples, when God gives himself a name in scripture, which he often does in the Bible, when God gives himself a name, you know that it means something. He's not just taking on a title. He is saying, I want you to know this about me. This is who I am. Think about that as we read this scripture. Isaiah 9 verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there are four names that Isaiah gives us there that he says, this is what, the, this is what we're going to call the Messiah when he comes. And those names mean something to us. He's telling us what the Messiah is meant to be for us. So I want to walk through those four names, and I want you to ask yourself, have I experienced Jesus in this way? What would it look like in my life if he became this for me? So the first name is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor, that's two things. It's an adjective and a noun. The adjective, wonderful. Now, let's, let's be honest about something we use adjectives in a way very different than they did in Scripture. For instance, think about the word awesome. How, how many times do you hear the word awesome on a daily basis? You hear it a lot. So how was your day yesterday? Oh, it's awesome. How's that ice cream? Awesome. How's your homework? Not awesome, right? We use the word awesome just to mean it's okay. I mean, we don't literally think when we say this ice cream is awesome, we don't mean, you know, it takes my breath away. I literally can't even think because I am in awe of the majesty of this cream and sugar and egg whipped together. No, we don't mean that. We say, yeah, it's pretty good. But when the Bible uses a word like awesome or a word like wonderful, which means the same thing, it inspires wonder, it inspires reverence, it inspires awe. It literally means that this person or this individual, this thing is so incredible that I can't speak in its presence. That it, it just, it surpasses the glory of anything I've ever experienced. So that's the word wonderful. The word counselor means what we think it means. It means someone who gives advice, someone who gives guidance. 
Now, we live in a time when a lot of people in our culture are affluent enough that they can pay people to give them guidance. They can pay an attorney. They can pay an accountant. They can pay a personal trainer to tell them how many push-ups to do and how many miles to run and what to eat. They can pay consultants to help them in their business, to make good decisions. And that's all well and good. And if you make your living in one of those fields, good for you. But there's only one wonderful counselor. There's only one counselor who is always right, who never has any agenda except love for you, only one wonderful counselor who always makes the right decisions, who is full of perfect wisdom, and who doesn't charge you a thing for his guidance, and that's Jesus. You know, one thing I've learned about life, and you can take this to the bank, is that if you go to a football game and you look around and you take the pulse of that crowd, every man in that stadium thinks he knows more about football than the coach. You ever notice this? And that's especially true if that man's son is one of the players on the field. And I can remember when I was in high school and I played football and and early on before we got to varsity, we had a quarterback who was pretty good and he was a good friend of mine, really good guy, but his dad was very outspoken at the games. I think his dad had been a coach earlier, and now he wasn't. And so during the games, my friend had a hard time because his dad was constantly yelling things to him from the stands. And this would get, this would get uh, rather distracting for us and for him, especially when the coach was trying to talk and, and my friend's dad was trying to talk at the same time. In fact, there was this one moment where there was a key time in the game where we were behind and we needed a touchdown drive. And then the coach gathered us all on the sidelines before we went out for that last drive. And, and he's talking to each one of us. And meanwhile, the quarterback's dad is yelling at him from the stands because he's got some advice too. And so my friend is trying to watch both, right? He's trying to look at the coach and then look up at his dad and look at the coach and look back up at his dad. And finally the coach in mid-speech grabs the quarterback's face mask and, and not roughly, okay, he grabs him and just pulls him until they're nose to nose. And then he lets go. And it was sort of a nonverbal way of saying, okay, there's only one coach right? You can only have only be one person in charge right now. If, if we're going to score right now, we're all going to have to listen to me. I think we lost the game, actually. But anyway, um, it's a good point because we as Christians, we as people who claim to follow Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, is he really my wonderful counselor? Is he the one I choose to listen to on all things. See, there's two parts to that. First of all, I have to take the time to hear his voice. This next year, we're challenging you to read through the whole Bible. Most Christians have never done that. This is an opportunity for you to get to know his word intimately and learn to hear his voice and learn how he speaks. Do you do that? Do you take the time to hear him? Secondly, do you heed what he says? Have you gotten to the point in your life where you say, if there's some area where I know the will of God, I'm going to do it, even if it costs me, even if it's risky, even if people think I'm crazy? Am I trying to submit to him in all things? Is he my wonderful counselor or is he not? Because there can really only be one. You don't need a divided heart. And that doesn't mean you don't listen to advice from other people. In fact, that's some, sometimes that's how God speaks to you is through the advice of godly men and women. And it doesn't mean that it's bad to have other counselors. Of course not. But there can only be one who you follow absolutely. Have you gotten to the point in your life where that's true of you? Because if it's true of you, then people could say, 
There's something different about the way you live, the way you make decisions, the way you conduct yourself. Is that true of you? Is he your wonderful counselor? Second name Isaiah gives us is mighty God. He is the mighty God. Now that means Isaiah knew something that it, as far as I can tell, no one at that point in history had figured out yet, and that is that there would be a human being who would come down to earth someday who would be different from all other human beings, who would be more than just a man, who would literally be God in human flesh. Isaiah calls the Messiah the mighty God. No one had ever said that before. And in fact, when Jesus came, most of the Israelites didn't believe that. They didn't grasp that. Even his own disciples, when he would do a miracle, they'd say, wait, who is this guy? They just didn't understand what Isaiah grasped 700 years before his birth. Now, if you have problems understanding how Jesus could be fully human, could sweat when he got hot and get tired when he worked too hard and cry when he got sad and could get colds and flus and stomach bugs and could be just like you and me in every way and yet at the same time could be fully God. So he created the universe. So he knew all things. So he had power to do whatever he wanted to do. He was fully human and fully God. And if you have a hard time understanding how Jesus could walk around in a human body and yet pray to God, the Father in heaven, well, join the club. I don't get it either. I don't understand how that works. But it's true. It's in the Word of God. It is the fact of who Jesus was. He is, he is the mighty God. Think about what that means. God is the God. God is the one who does the impossible. God is the one who created an entire universe with spoken words. Who does that but God? He's the one who created a new race of people out of the womb of a 90-year-old woman and created that group of people, the Israelite nation, in spite of their faithlessness, in spite of the fact they were just as sinful as you and me, he made them a light to the world, to all the nations of the world. You know, there was no monotheistic religion before the Jews came along. And they taught the world there is one God. Through that same people, he brought forth a Messiah, born of a virgin. God does the impossible. You got problems believing that Jesus was born in the womb of a virgin? You just don't believe there's a mighty God. He grew up, lived a sinless life, healed the sick, healed the blind, raised the dead, died an atoning death for our sins. His death was sufficient to take away all of our sin and make us right with God. He rose from the grave on the third day because God does the impossible. Then God did something even more remarkable. He changed the world forever through a movement founded by 12 people so incompetent and unstable, you and I wouldn't let them manage a Waffle House. And yet, they changed the world. God can do whatever he wants to do. Whatever he purposes to do, he accomplishes. And now that same, listen to me, that same power is available to you. Not to do with whatever you want, because what a terrible idea would that be? No, that power is available for you to accomplish whatever God has placed before you to accomplish. To live out the, the unique and beautiful purpose that he placed before your life from the very beginning, from before you were born. And you may say, well, okay, that sounds good, but I've never seen the power of God. I've never seen a miracle. And there's lots of Christians who get discouraged because they say, I just don't understand. I mean, God in the Bible does all these miracles. I don't see miracles happening. My, prayer, my prayers never get answered. You understand God doesn't change, right? 
So if we're not seeing things happen in our lives that prove the power of God, it's not because He changed, it's because we did. I think there's a couple of reasons why we don't see the power of God in evidence these days the way we, we should. One is because we don't tend to do anything that requires faith. We don't, we don't step out there where it's risky. We don't, we don't try to accomplish big things for God. In Scripture, you see people facing down armies. We see, you see people standing up to tyrants and councils and saying, no matter what you do to me, I'm still going to believe. We don't behave that way. As American Christians, our priority seems to be, um, how can I get as safe as possible and live as comfortably as I can? And, and that's not really the mindset that inspires miraculous power. That's basically the, the American dream, and you don't need the power of God to get that. I think the second reason we don't see God's power and evidence as often as we should is we don't believe in the power of prayer. If we did, we'd pray more often. And when I say pray more often, I don't just mean bringing God your little, your little wish list like, like, like a child before Santa. Here's what I want, these two, these three, these four, these five things. Okay, hand them over. No, I mean times when we just commune with God and we just say, I, I just need to sit there. I just need to sit here and listen to your voice and meditate on your word. I just need to share with you what's on my heart and then hear what you're saying to me. I just need to be with you, God. How often do we do that? How often do we spend an entire day where everything we do in the midst of our work, in the midst of our chores, in the midst of our driving and commuting, we're communing with Him all through the day. You know, if we did that, I think we'd see God's power and evidence. This next year, we're challenging our members to pray for the lost in 2019. Like I said earlier today, um, we have a method that we're going to challenge you to use. It's called concentric circles. Take a look. There's a sheet about it on the all-in table. But what do you think is going to happen if this year you pray like you've never prayed before? More intentionally, more fervently, I think you're going to see God's power and evidence. And it's going to change you. He is the mighty God. There are people in this room right now that need His power in a desperate way. There are people in this room that are facing challenges that I can't even imagine that are facing discouragements and burdens they can't possibly bear. You know how people say sometimes God will never give you more than you can handle? Find that in the Bible. It's not there. God gives you more than you can handle all the time. You know why? Because He can handle it. You need and I need to learn to trust in His mighty power. And that starts when we Really commit to prayer. Really commit to trusting in Him. There's a third name He gives in Isaiah 9-6. He calls Him Everlasting Father. Again, a, the kind of name that has never been spoken of the Messiah before, to call Him Father. Uh, this is an unusual uh, title that Isaiah gives. And, and let me tell you why this is, is significant. In the Israelite religion, in, in Judaism, you read the Old Testament, you never see God referred to as Father. There's references to God as the Father of Israel, but not, there was no individual Israelite, no individual Jew in, in the Old Testament era, or even in Jesus' time, who would have said, yes, God is my Father. He wouldn't have prayed, oh, Father, come and, and bless me. That just wasn't heard of. Isn't it interesting that the father figure is such an important thing. In fact, Dr. Paul Vitz, uh, a psychiatrist at New York University, some years ago wrote a book called Faith of the Fatherless, The Psychology 
of atheism. His point was, he was trying to figure out what is it that causes a certain individual, you know, a small uh, minority of society to reject belief in God. You look down through history and very few people, relatively few people, have disbelieved in even the existence of a creator. Even in America where the, the voice of atheism, the voice of unbelief is so strong and where it's very influential in our society, you get down to the, to the nub of it, it's only about 3 to 7% of America who would say, yes, I'm an atheist. So he studied the more famous atheists through history, the people who've changed the world in various ways and, and tried to try to find commonalities between them. And what he found was each of the people he studied had a difficult relationship with their father or they had no father in their home at all. So here's, here's his statement in, in a presentation he gave at Columbia University. He said, Sigmund Freud wrote that his father was a sexual pervert. Thomas Hobbes's father was an Anglican clergyman who got into a fight with another man in the churchyard and subsequently abandoned his family. Ludwig Feuerbach, at age 13, was abandoned by his father, who openly took up living with another woman in a different town. Voltaire fought constantly with his father, causing him later to reject his surname. Schopenhauer's father committed suicide when he was 16. Both Bertrand Russell and Nietzsche lost their fathers at the age of four. Sartre's father died before Sartre was born. Camus lost his father when he was a year old. Hume lost his father in early childhood. Hitler's father was a violent man who unmercifully beat Adolf, his mother, and even the family dog. He died when Adolf was 14. Stalin's father also administered brutal beatings to his son. Now, I don't think you can, you can go from those statements to the point that, well, all atheists have daddy issues. I've known uh, people who were atheists and they had fine relationships with their fathers, so it's not a 100% uh, statement. But his point is, when a father is absent or when a father is abusive, it makes a difference. On the other hand, when a father is present, when a father is loving, when a father is kind, it changes things for the better. And in a world that is increasingly fatherless, where there are fathers who increasingly don't step up to the plate, don't take on their responsibilities, don't show love, isn't it significant to remember that Jesus was the first one to come along and say, call God Father. Call God Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. By the way, the word Jesus used when he told his disciples to call God Father is, a, is an Aramaic word pronounced Abba. Yeah, like the Swedish band from the 70s, but that's a different thing. Abba, A-B-B-A, which means simply Daddy. It's the kind of word all scholars agree. Probably the first word most Israelite children would have learned when they were infants, when they were toddlers. And by the way, just as a side note, ladies, do you ever get mad that children usually say daddy before they say mama? Don't you think that's unfair? I'm not trying to start a fight or anything, but you carried that child for 40 weeks, you gave birth, you nursed the child, you were the one up late with them, and after all that work, daddy, it's just not fair. Oh well. So Jesus, as a baby, probably did the same thing. Little Mary's holding baby Jesus, and he looks up at her, and he looks over at, Je at Joseph and says, Abba. And that's the word he teaches us to call God, because that's the relationship our Father wants us to have with him. 
And so there are probably people in this room, I don't know who they may be, but there are probably people in this room that right now would say, I feel lonely. I feel abandoned. I feel like I don't count. And for those people, it's important to know you have a father who knows everything about you, who knows the number of hairs on your head, who knew you before you were born, who planned your life, who crafted you in your mother's womb for a specific purpose, who has shed tears with every time you've been heartbroken, has rejoiced with every time you've gotten something right, and who can't wait to spend eternity with you. You are loved. You have the kind of father that your earthly father only wished he could have been. He is your everlasting Father, the Father who will never leave, who will never forsake you. And then finally, He calls Him the Prince of Peace. This time of year, we get a lot of Christmas cards. A lot of Christmas cards are scriptural. They'll have a scripture on there, like the one we read today, Isaiah 9, 6. But by far, I would say the most popular scripture for Christmas cards is Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill, Toward men. Those are the words of the angel on the night Jesus was born. He spoke those words to the shepherds. And we all love that, right? Even people who aren't particularly religious will hear that and they'll say, Yeah, that sounds good. Peace on earth, goodwill. And then we turn on the news and we see a suicide bombing in Afghanistan and riots in Paris and we see a mass shooting in our country and we see dysfunction in our own family and we say, Where is this peace on earth that Jesus came to bring? You know, the word peace in Hebrew is the word shalom. And it means more than just an absence of conflict. It means when things are set right, when things are put back the way they should be. Jesus in coming didn't come like a dictator saying, okay, everybody better straighten up or you're all dead. No, he came as a savior. He came to bring shalom, but he came to bring it by grace, not by coercion. Jesus is coming back with an army someday. He's coming back to reclaim this world. But we live in the age of grace where his kingdom spreads quietly. As the old Christmas carol says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. That means that shalom comes into my life as I let him take control of me. And when I'm fighting with my wife and we're both competing for control of our relationship and then when I step back and say, wait a second, I need to love her the way Christ loved the church. Holy Spirit, show me how. And then I start to be patient with her and loving and kind to her and she reciprocates and suddenly there is peace, there is shalom in our home. And when the circumstances of life are against me and when I'm grieving the loss of a loved one and I've got health problems and I've got money problems and and there's all kinds of storms all around me and when I step back and say, but wait a second, Jesus is my hope. The world can take away lots of things, but it can't take away my inheritance in the Lord. It can't take away the fact that I have a life that has purpose and meaning in Him and a life eternal after that. I have peace. I can sleep at night knowing that the world can't take away what's most precious to me. My life has peace, has shalom, because the more Christ takes control of me, the the more things are set right. And that's what He wants you to have. But you know where it starts? It doesn't start in your relationships with others. It doesn't start with your money or your circumstances. It starts in your relationship with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, 
Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through Him. You know why Jesus came? He didn't come to command an army and and conquer all the bad guys. He didn't come to be a politician who stood up and, and made new laws. He didn't come to be a philosopher who wrote down the way we ought to live. He came to set us right in our relationship with God. And that's why He died. Because you and me and God, our relationship was fractured through our own sin. The fault was all ours. And we couldn't possibly make things right. So Jesus said, I'm the one. I lived a perfect life, but I will take their place. I will die the death they should have died now that I've lived the life they should have lived. And they'll get credit for my life and I will die their death so that God and humanity can be reconciled. God brought peace in his relationship between us and him through Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Peace. I had a professor in seminary who used to tell us every once in a while, you know, once in a while I get a letter from a person who, uh, who graduated from this institution, and he'll write me and he'll say, Dr. So-and-so, I, I just have to confess to you that when I was in your class, I cheated on a test. Yeah, I brought in notes, and I, I looked at them during the test, so I knew what to say. Or I, I, I was falling behind, and, and you had a paper due, and so I copied somebody else's paper from a previous semester. I cheated. I'm unworthy to be a graduate of this institution. Would you tell the president to revoke my diploma? Some of them will even send the diploma back in the envelope. You know, just a guilty conscience. And he always sent them the same letter. He'd say, listen, I'm not going to take this anywhere You need to settle this with God. I can't forgive you, but he can. Don't confess your sins to me. Confess it to him. There's got to be people in this room, and I don't know who they are. If I'm looking at you, it's not to make things weird. I just got to look somewhere. There's got to be people in this room who would say, if they were honest, yeah, I'm not right with God right now. There's no peace in my life, and it starts... Because I know there's areas of my life that are just not being lived according to His will. Listen, we're all sinners. But there are some people in this room, I'm sure, who would say, yeah, I'm here in church. I'm putting on a good show. But you don't see the way I really live. You don't see the way I really think. The way I really talk when I'm not here. Why not come to Him and just say, Lord, bring peace to me. Bring peace to my relationship with you. Set us right again so I can start living the way I should. Maybe for the very first time. Jesus is all of these things and more. Have you let him come into your heart and and be your wonderful counselor, your guide through through the pitfalls of life? Have you let him be the mighty God who empowers you to accomplish more than you could ever accomplish on your own? Have you made him your everlasting father so that Even if all others turn away, you have someone who believes in you. And have you made him your Prince of Peace? So that you can can experience the, the beauty of having your life being put slowly back together after it's been shattered by sin and brokenness and distance from God to have that life rebuilt into the image of Christ. Are you experiencing these things? Because today can be the beginning of a new kind of life for you. The best Christmas gift you could ever give yourself.